3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to kick off this episode by talking about a piece of art. And uh, it's a piece of art that I, I imagine a lot of you have seen. And if you haven't seen it, you can... And you're not driving a vehicle or anything right now, you can easily look it up. And you can certainly find it for the landing page uh, for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. It is um, a Japanese print. It is uh, titled The Great Wave off Kanagawa. And it's a, a 19th century Edo period woodblock print by Katsushika Hokusai. And it depicts a great wave... Uh, endangering ships off the coast of Kanagawa. And it was once thought to depict uh, a tsunami, but now most um, commentators think that it actually depicts a rogue wave. Um, now the the artist here, he explored this subject matter many times in his career. Uh, so if you look at other images he created, there are plenty of other waves, but this particular print is considered the peak, the culmination of 60 years in the arts. Um, And since it's a a woodblock print and not a painting, you can actually find it in numerous museums around the world, thus increasing the odds that you have seen this image, if not online, then perhaps in in person. But I think one of the great things about it is that it, it captures... A sense of the majesty of a great wave. The idea that it's it's there's like a topography of the ocean visible, the ocean surface visible in this picture uh, that that reminds us that a wave can be a mountain.
0: Well, yeah, and the wave in the uh, in the woodblock, even what do you call it, a print or a painting? When it's the painting, whatever it is, on this image, uh, it, the wave resembles the mountain in the background, and the mountain in the background has sort of a blue-gray uh, slope and then the white peak, of course, covered in snow. The waves are much like that with these uh, the white surging foam at the top. But in the painting, the foam has these like hooks that almost look like eagle's talons reaching out of the top of this wall of water and there's uh, there's a way that uh, I at least often looked at this painting without even realizing there were supposed to be boats represented at the bottom. Yeah, it's kind of uh, easy to miss the boats. Uh, they're they're all swallowed up by what's going on all around. It's a beautiful uh, piece of art and I don't know why but I've always, when I've looked at it before thought of it as somehow calming or like a, a picture of sort of like serene nature which is hilarious because it's depicting a scene of
1: utter chaos and destruction and terror right i mean it's spoken like a true landsman right uh, <laughs> yeah. when clearly like this is a product of a of, of an island culture that uh it, it was very you know very aware of the dangers posed by the by the ocean and uh yeah I, because i i probably am in the same same boat uh, no pun intended with you <laughs> is that when i've seen the image in the past it was just always like oh yeah serene nature But no, this is a a, a cresting mountain of uh, oceanic uh, uh, destruction, or at least potential destruction uh, in terms of uh, human activities on or near the ocean. The mountain that flows. So speaking of the
0: dangers of the ocean, I mean, there are many of them and we know what many of them are, but... We often discuss uh, ancient bestiaries and records of monsters and strange creatures from the ancient world. And, of course, some of the best ones, uh, even through, like, the medieval period, are of sea monsters. So you've got these stories about lizards that kill with a gaze or giant sea monsters that suck entire ships into their mouths. And they can be funny to read about now, especially with the certainty that ancient writers had when they talked about these subjects But one point I've made before and that I want to echo again is I think it was not at all stupid or irrational for ancient peoples to believe in sea monsters. I think it was a perfectly reasonable and rational thing for them to assume. And there are a few reasons for this. We've we've touched on some of them on the show before. Number one, there actually are sea monsters in a way. We just call them by different names now, like, you know, the sperm whale, blue whale, giant squid, the sunfish, the lion's mane jellyfish. These are all giant, magnificent, awe-inspiring creatures. But what's changed is that we've fit them into a standard evolutionary taxonomy. We think of them as animals that have common origins with the other animals. But when ancient sailors told stories of these giant beasts out in the ocean, many were probably telling the truth to the best of their ability. They saw something huge and strange and
1: terrifying, and they're trying to remember and describe what it was. And then on top of that, you're dealing with with just a a culture and a legacy um, of of danger upon uh, the sea and beneath the sea. Yes. Uh, so the, when those two things come together, I mean, here there be monsters, right? Exactly. And because the sea, you know, a, a life at
0: sea has long, I think, been associated with a kind of with a kind of daring and bravado, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I think there's another reason it was sort of rational to believe in giant krakens that could pull ships down to their doom. And it's that Poseidon is one of the cruelest and most fickle of the gods. That's not an accident that the Greek myths are like that. It is not at all uncommon for ships to set sail on the high seas and then just vanish, leaving behind no trace at all. Uh, Other times you might find a giant sturdy ship wrecked with no apparent cause. Like it's mast and rigging smashed to bits with giant holes blown in its solid hull. And when you see wrecks like this, uh, in fact, some of the wrecks I was looking at in preparation for this episode, it calls to mind, uh, I was thinking about that poem we've talked about on the show before, Alfred Lord Tennyson's uh, The Kraken, where, you know, there's this beast battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep until the latter fire shall heat the deep, and he comes up to the surface. And of course, in the poem, he dies, but what's more likely? It's a, He's actually going to like punch a hole right in the middle of your ship. <laughs> Now, obviously, there are many ways for ships to wreck and sink, causing them to vanish without a trace. They can hit rocks. They can hit hidden reefs. uh, They can capsize and take on water. But there is one particular phenomenon that sailors have long been telling these dark, uh, majestically terrifying stories about. And it's something that could explain many sudden disappearances of seagoing vessels – If it was anything more than a fantasy, and it's what you mentioned about the woodblock painting
1: earlier, the
0: monster wave, the rogue wave.
1: Also known as a freak wave. Freak wave. Which I like because it sounds like either a musical Uh subgenre or some sort of like misfit style punk band, you know, Uh freak wave.
0: It's a genre that mixes punk music with carnival music, like (laughs) circus music. No, I— You know I say that, but I bet that's actually a genre somewhere out there. It probably is.
1: At this point, all subgenres exist.
0: (laughs) Uh, But so, yeah, the the idea of a rogue wave or a monster wave. So we're not just talking about rough seas in general, but a single gigantic wave, an unbelievably high wall of water that appears as if out of nowhere and crashes over your ship like a hammer of the sea gods. And so sailors have talked about this, and we want to ask today – Could these tales be true? Do we now know whether they're true? And could they explain many of history's vanished ships and hulls broken like toys?
1: Now, at this point, I do want to to mention that uh, in our research, I think we'd hope to maybe throw in more like giant wave myths, more accounts from, say, ancient histories of of giant waves as opposed to, you know, organic sea monsters. And I'm not saying they don't exist. Uh, They may very well exist, but I had trouble finding them and we were discussing why that might be. I mean, we could go back to what you said earlier, how a ship disappears at sea, perhaps caused by a giant wave, and the story is about a sea monster or it becomes about an organic sea monster.
0: Yes. Uh, and one point of parallel here is that obviously even the ancient peoples knew about the idea that a ship could encounter, say, bad weather yeah. while it was out at sea and be wrecked and, and all that. So it's not like there was no other way for ships to sink. But the way in which a rogue wave as a concept resembles a sea monster is, is that it's unexpected, you know, that, that it reaches up out of the deep, that it's much higher than all the other waves in the, in oh, the yeah. ocean and it just takes you completely by surprise yeah and
1: that's key here it's not a situation of like oh suddenly all the waves were enormous no suddenly one wave stands vastly am- above all the others much like the mountain of a wave uh in the uh, the print we were discussing at the top of the episode
0: now, obviously, lots of ships in history have encountered rough seas. Like certain regions of the ocean and certain weather patterns can generate lots of chop and high waves. Uh, but ships are usually made to withstand bad weather. That's part of what ship design is for. You know, you say, okay, it might encounter this kind of weather, so we need to make it this amount strong to withstand it.
1: Right. Like if you know you're going around the Cape, you're gonna you're gonna build and sail vessels designed for uh, for rough seas.
0: Yeah, and these wave patterns have long been understood to be predictable within certain parameters. You make a ship strong and she'll hold – Uh, But what we're talking about with these monster wave stories is a wave that suddenly appears without warning and is at least twice as high as all the other waves in the sea. And, of course, when you're talking about a wave of water that's twice as high as the other waves around it, uh, it's something where, you know, the power and destructiveness of it doesn't just scale linearly. You know, it it Mm -hmm. becomes a, a new kind of phenomenon you're dealing with.
1: Now, I want, to be, I want to be clear here that we're we're talking about true rogue waves or monster waves, freak waves, et cetera, here uh, that do seem to come out of nowhere. And they're not to be confused with giant waves generated by seismic activity. Right.
0: Like underwater volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, or cascades, that
1: kind of right. thing. Though those can be incredible. I mean, yeah. just for an example— um, I was reading about the earthquake-generated tsunami in Alaska's uh, Latoya Bay, uh, which, according to Discover Magazine, was uh, 400 feet taller than the Empire State Building.
0: Yeah, there, there. People have done like illustrations of this online. Yeah. You can find where the, it's it's just staggering. Like it, it created this. I think it was supposed to be
1: like 1,700 feet, roughly. Uh, Yeah, according to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, quote, the 1958 earthquake shook loose millions of cubic yards of dirt and rocks from a 40-degree slope in the northeast corner of the bay. The rock mass displaced a large body of water, causing both the splash wave that rose to 1,740 feet and a gravity wave that was 150 feet high at the head of the bay. The waves sheared and stripped the bark from thousands of trees, some of them four feet in diameter just clear-cut the land next to the bay yeah and this occurred in 1958 again but they seem seemingly uh, something like it occurred at the same area in 36 uh, and also in the 1850s and 1874 as well so that's just a taste of the destructive possibilities of seismically generated waves in shallow coastal areas
0: yeah and of course in a, so we've got tsunamis as well tsunamis happen when something happens out in the ocean uh, there's like an earthquake or you know a shift in the seafloor floor an mm-hmm. eruption Something like that. And then there's a pressure wave that goes throughout the water column uh, toward the shore. As it nears the shore, of course, as it enters the shallow waters, that's when it becomes really destructive because that mass of pressure, it rises up out of the water and, you know, keeps coming and flooding against the shore, taking whatever's on the shore along with it
1: yeah no, no obviously, atmospheric conditions are complicated, as we've discussed on the show before. They are complex systems uh, a lot of you know forces conversion together it becomes very difficult to predict uh, atmospheric conditions and weather conditions uh, increasingly you know, far in the future mm-hmm. and of course, we have a very similar situation uh with the the movement uh, of the fluids in the ocean mm-hmm. but uh uh, but 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 with these cases, they make a lot more sense to us, right? The tsunami, the earthquake-generated tsunami, uh, because we can we can easily say, well, this is the thing, this is the great event that caused the great wave, and the idea of a wave just coming out seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, the, the the source is, a, is seemingly a little more elusive. Like it seems to be emerging from the complex uh, interplay of uh, different storm patterns and uh, currents.
0: Yeah, you might be just out in a storm with waves that are pretty regular, a certain height, coming and going and going and going and going. And then there's one. Yeah. Suddenly the mountain arrives, or so the stories tell us. Right. So the question is, when sailors tell these stories, are they true? And so I thought maybe we should look at a couple of first hand accounts. You ready, Robert? Let's do it. Who's our first adventurer? Well, I thought we should turn to uh, one first-hand account from the Antarctic explorer, Ernest Shackleton. Hmm which came from the famous Voyage of the James Caird. Now, this voyage was one part of the overall survival journey after the failure of Shackleton's Antarctic expedition in a ship called the Endurance that started in 1914. And this is an absolutely astounding survival story that is worth looking up if you've never read it. Uh, And this is is only one part of the story. Um, But the short version of the context here was that 1914, Shackleton and crew set out for Antarctica in this ship, the Endurance, but the ship became trapped in ice in the Weddell Sea and the ship eventually sank. Of course, this was 1914 or 15, you're in Antarctica that, you know, your ship sinking is sort of a death sentence. Yeah. I mean, even today, it is very bad news. So the crew made their way, you know, they're out there stranded, and the crew made their way to an uninhabited island known as Elephant Island from after where the ship sank. And Shackleton reasoned that their only hope of survival was seeking help and reinforcement from the island of South Georgia, where he knew that there was a whaling station. So if they got to where the people were at the whaling station there, they could you know, come back for rescue with a bigger ship. But South Georgia was about 800 miles or 1,300 kilometers away over terrible seas. You know, the seas around Antarctica are, you know, they're icy, there's rough, bad weather. It's not a place to be sailing in an unreinforced vessel. And the only viable vessel they had for making the voyage, because remember their ship sank, the the best thing they had to use was a 22-foot or about six-and-a-half-meter lifeboat called the James Caird. So Shackleton and a few others, they left the rest of the crew uh, sheltered at Elephant Island, and they set out on this brutal journey to get a rescue party uh, during which they encountered ice and bad weather. The story is harrowing and amazing. They talk about how, uh, you know, ice would keep building up on the boat because it was freezing. And they'd be soaked by all these horrible waves that are pounding on them. It's freezing weather, and they'd have to keep constantly chipping the ice off of the boat because the ice would weigh the boat down and start to make it sink. Oh, um, and you know this is a this is like a multi-week journey, and at one point while Shackleton was at the tiller of the boat, uh, so there had been very bad weather, of course, and then he he's at the tiller one time, and he thinks he sees the clouds breaking and a clear sky up ahead, and then I want to quote from Shackleton's own account. Quote. I called to the other men that the sky was clearing, and then a moment later, I realized that what I had seen was not a rift in the clouds, but the white crest of an enormous wave. During 26 years' experience of the ocean in all its moods, I had not encountered a wave so gigantic. It was a mighty upheaval of the ocean, a thing quite apart from the big white-capped seas that had been our tireless enemies for many days. I shouted, for God's sake, hold on, it's got us, then came a moment of suspense that seemed drawn out into hours. White surged the foam of the breaking sea around us. We felt our boat lifted and flung forward like a cork in breaking surf. We were in a seething chaos of tortured water, but somehow the boat lived through it, half full of water, sagging to the dead weight and shuddering under the blow. We bailed with the energy of men fighting for life, flinging the water over the sides with every receptacle that came to our hands. And after 10 minutes of uncertainty, we felt the boat renew her life beneath us. So the fact that that this giant wave did not sink or just completely smash their tiny boat to pieces is one of the many bizarre miracles of this unbelievable journey. Uh, You know, you always have to wonder, like, how things like that happen. But apparently it did, according to Shackleton's telling. And the crew actually did manage to reach South Georgia. According to an account by Gary Pearson, though, after they got ashore in South Georgia, quote, at 2 a.m. on the first night ashore, Shackleton woke everyone shouting, look out, boys, hold on. It's going to break on us. It was a nightmare. Shackleton thought that the black snow-crested cliff above them was a giant wave. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, that that is an impressive telling. and But yet at the same time, you can easily – go either way on it, right? You can say, well, all right, Shackleton is a trustworthy source of information and Mm -hmm. this is what he saw. But then on the other hand, we have to say he was in an extreme situation. I mean, we've spoken before on the show about how extreme conditions can lead to seemingly paranormal encounters. Oh, yeah. You know, if you've been awake for a long time, if you're fighting for your survival, etc., And all of those elements are, are, are here. Yeah, and there are
0: problems with the plausibility of the story. I mean, how did this wave not sink and kill them? Yeah. Yeah, so whatever happened obviously made an impression. Like, this consummate survivor had nightmares not of sea monsters in the deep but of a lone killer wave Wave rolling up out of the ocean as high as a mountainside. Uh, And so one thing about giant waves like this is that if they exist, we shouldn't have necessarily expected to hear eyewitness accounts of them all that often in history because of a couple things. Number one, of course, if they do exist, for a long time people thought them to be very rare. But on top of that, if sailors in the wooden ships of olden days encountered a wave like this, uh, there was not a good chance of them living to tell about it, right? right? The Goliath wave would just arise suddenly, kill everyone, sink the ship, and then melt back into the sea without a trace.
1: How would you, how would you even know it had happened? Yeah, it would be like asking for um, eyewitness accounts of the Grim Reaper. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if if the reaper's showing up, then uh, it's probably doing its job.
0: Yeah, uh, but the, of course, uh, Shackleton's story is not the only one. There actually were a lot of stories like this. Many mariners— told these tales of a giant killer wave. Uh, in the book Oceanography in the Days of Sail uh, by Ian Jones and Joyce Jones, the authors write about the French naval explorer and scientist Dumont d'Urville and uh, his his disputes with the French scientist Francois Arago about the upper limits of wave height. Quote, when the astrolabe, and that was... Uh, Uh, d'Urville's ship. When the Astrolabe in 1826 was making its way across the southern stretches of the Indian Ocean, it encountered a gale with mountainous seas in which a man was lost overboard. Dumont d'Urville, in his narrative, expressed the opinion that the waves reached a height of at least 80 to 100 feet in an era when opinions were being expressed that no wave would exceed 30 feet. Dumont d'Urville's estimations were received, it seemed, with some skepticism. Hmm. And Francois Arago rejected and even ridiculed Derville's claim. Basically, you know, this is just a seaman's fancy. Uh, he referred in writing to the, quote, truly prodigious waves with which the lively imagination of certain navigators delights in covering the seas. That sounded like a burn. That was a bit of a burn. There. I think, yeah, I think yeah. he was being a bit dismissive here. But uh, maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can talk about some physical evidence that actually points to the existence of waves like this.
1: All right, we're back. We've we've discussed uh, accounts, anecdotal uh, evidence of giant waves, of freak waves, of rogue waves. Mm-hmm. But uh, now we're going to get into what the science has to say. What what kind of proof? is there, if any, to substantiate these claims.
0: Right. You'd want some kind of physical evidence other than just people saying they saw a giant
1: wave. Yeah, because people say they saw all sorts of things. But, uh, you know, ultimately, this is why we have science. This is why we have uh, recording equipment. Uh, This is so we can actually validate uh, that that, uh, waves of this uh, nature exist.
0: Yeah, and so we talked about uh, the French scientist Francois Arago being—severely uh, s- doubting that waves like this existed. And from a scientific point of view, there had long been reason to doubt these accounts of gina- gigantic monster waves. Uh, not that it was impossible for a giant wave to exist, but that monstrous waves of the kind reported by mariners, you know, the kind that would cause some of the damage attributed to them, they, they were thought to only come about on the scale of maybe once in hundreds or thousands of years. You know, it's like the thousand-year storm kind of right. thing.
1: So, like, every thousand years— a wave like this might occur, but then just might not be people around to see it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you've got this question, were Shackleton and all these others exaggerating, hallucinating, misremembering? Was this the, was the mountain that flows like a mermaid or something?
1: Right. So, I mean, on one hand, you have that argument, right? That uh, maybe they're just not occurring enough for anyone to ever see them. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem right that we have numerous accounts um, where, where people say they witness them. But of course, we also have to consider the you know the fact that ships and seamen again have always gone missing. Like this, mm. you look to the uh, uh, the sheer number of shipwrecks. You look to uh, accounts of um, of human activities uh, uh, on the sea. Uh, ships have always sunk. Ships have always encountered bad weather or, or various other uh, uh, you know uh, uh, things that would cause them uh, uh, to perish. Yeah, and
0: another thing we should think about is that ships sink and disappear at a rate that would absolutely set our hair on fire if it. Was like airplanes or something. You know, if there's like one major airline crash, people freak out, but ships go missing or sink all the time.
1: Yeah. Um, I was looking around for some stats on this. And today, uh, and again, as hum- humans command the sea more than ever before, more ships are on the sea than, than at any point in human history. And we're looking at uh, a loss of something like 100 large vessels every year.
0: Yeah, that's about an average. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've, I've seen it Also, this just a stat also thrown out there that it basically amounts to two vessels per week. And that's just large vessels. When you add in smaller vessels, it's even more. Yeah, now, and of course, some of these are going to be clear cases, right, where they say, oh, you know, this was this ship sunk because, uh, you know, it uh, ran aground here, some sort of a collision here, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but in other cases, it could inevitably remain a mystery. It's just, you know, case-by-case case scenario. So we have to ask these cases, though, the mysterious cases, uh, the very sort of case that may have led to various nautical superstitions like the Bermuda Triangle uh, and, and in olden times sea monsters, uh, could these be due to some manner of rogue wave?
0: Yeah, exactly. And so to answer that question, I think one good thing, to, one good place to start and where people uh, did look for a long time was for physical evidence of damage caused by rogue waves.
1: Yeah, and... Uh, and for the longest, we simply didn't have any solid evidence. Yeah, uh, and We didn't have any evidence of them, a solid evidence of them occurring. We didn't have footage or anything. Uh, so all we still had were just those um, those various bits of anecdotal, infr- uh, anecdotal evidence and then experts weighing in on what seemed possible and likely.
0: But of course, if waves like this were occurring, they should in some ways cause damage that we should be able to see and detect because, right. I mean, wa- water is amazingly powerful. People we do not have good intuitions about the physical power of moving water. Uh, This may come from our experience like swimming for pleasure or splashing in a bathtub. You know, where moving water just glides gently and gracefully around the body, causing no harm at all. But our intuitions about water really fail when we encounter large masses of fast-moving fluids. Like the way people behave in flash floods is a great example of this. You will a lot of times see people who appear to think they can just wade through knee-high moving floodwaters only to discover tragically that it just washes you away instantly. And yeah, or in
1: many cases, they, they think they can drive through it. Oh,
0: yeah, and, and it's tragic, but it, it, it's, uh, it reflects the fact that our intuitions about the power of moving water are not good. We underestimate it. Likewise with giant waves. You know, we we may be used to playing in the surf on a beach vacation or something where the waves are harmless. They're fun. You can glide with pleasure over each peak and trough. But – sufficiently huge walls of moving water that are moving fast can act more or less like huge walls of concrete smashing right into you at speed. Uh, just like tsunamis can, you know, tear down solid buildings and trees, a giant wave crashing into a ship or a structure can cause devastating physical damage. It hits, it moves, it twists the structure. I mean, it, it,
1: it it's like a hand of a god. Indeed, and Poseidon's a heavy hitter.
0: Yeah, so if you ask, was there ever physical damage that would indicate the existence of seemingly impossible rogue waves, like uh, before we had direct uh, records of one, I think the answer is yes. There were, there were some very chilling and mysterious clues left in the wreckage of battered ships and structures in or near the water. Uh, there, there are stories going way back to like waves crashing against lighthouses that, that are so far up off the water, it seems impossible that like a wave could have damaged them, you Know, lighthouses right. more than 100 feet up uh, off the normal water line with windows smashed out and and stuff like that. And you'd be like, how how did that happen? In 1982, the mobile offshore drilling platform, the Ocean Ranger, was apparently damaged by a giant wave off the coast of Canada. It sustained damage to its ballast control room, uh, which only could have happened if there was an extremely high wave. And this led to a chain reaction of events that caused the platform to sink. And, And tragically, all 84 crew members died. Everyone aboard died when this thing sank. But there were also there, – there have been stories uh, all throughout the 20th century of like ocean liners of both, uh, you know, passenger vessels and, and cargo vessels and naval vessels that uh, would report being suddenly hit by a giant wave that, that just wreaked havoc upon the ship. You know, it would damage the bridge. It would rip off the mast and rigging. Sometimes it would rip away lifeboats that were like, you know, had steel bolts holding oh, them wow. in place. Things that wouldn't make sense if it was just rocking in normal bad weather. But even with all this physical evidence of of structures and ships being hit by these powerful events, it, it would still be hard to measure and confirm the existence of these giant rogue waves firsthand because, number one, you can't predict in advance when one will appear. Like, there are obviously better places and times to look for them.
1: Right. Uh, but you can't
0: know when one's going to happen or where.
1: And then if when one does show up, uh, you suddenly have a number of priorities <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ahead of uh, perhaps recording it. And that being said, we are increasingly in an age of just ubiquitous recording equipment. So who knows what the very near future will bring.
0: Yeah, and so when one does appear, th- there's generally not time to react and track and observe it like you're saying. It's just there and then within a few seconds you will very possibly be dead.
1: So the key here really is to, to, to not, of course, not just depend on eyewitness accounts, which we already had, and there, of course there's an inherent problem there, uh, and we can't go looking for them uh, per se because there are difficulties there. What you need... Are essentially machine recordings, passive detections. Yeah, some sort of detection system uh, that that will say, will tell you like what uh, what sort of wave activity is occurring near a given vessel or a, near a given um, offshore platform.
0: Yeah, and one that is lucky or unlucky enough to catch one in, in the act. And so the history of rogue wave science, I think, really changed in 1995, right?
1: Because that's when we finally did get this this sort of evidence. So it was January 1st, 19. 1995, in the North Sea, uh, the North Sea uh, platform, uh, Dropner, which is a a gas platform. This was built in 1984, and it consists of seven risers. And even today, it's an important complex in the Norwegian oil industry.
0: Yeah, so this would be situated like in the North Sea between Norway and Scotland, basically.
1: Yeah, so which are, you know, this is like, these are rough seas. Yeah, uh, but on this particular day, equipment aboard the platform, namely a downward-looking laser, uh, recorded a monster of a wave. So significant wave height in the area, uh, this is just like the average sort of wave height that was occurring, was already 12 meters or 39.37 feet. Okay. So everything was already like, really? thats That sounds horrible. Yeah. I, I, would not, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that, you know? You don't want to take your James Carrot out on that. Right. Uh, but then according to the data, a wave rolled in that was 25.6 meters high or 83.9 feet.
0: Now, as is often the case, you, you might just hear a number and it might not mean anything to you, but do your best to stop for a second here and picture it.
1: Yeah. We're talking a seven story building of a wave. Yeah. And, uh, and it's coming at the platform, and indeed, the platform sustained uh, minor damage. Uh, luckily, but that damage was enough to to verify the reality of the wave. So, in other words, showing that this wasn't just a, a recording anomaly where yeah. you know the, the the laser went wonky or something, a seagull flew under it, you know, or whatever would cause it to to uh, to produce uh, some sort of uh, an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we also have the physical damage to the structure to back up what happened. Yeah, so they've got the they've got the
0: accurate scientific reading from the instrument and they've got corroborating evidence.
1: So it wasn't just a freak measurement, it was in fact a freak wave, a rogue wave. And so in 1995, really the the, the first day of the new year, we entered uh, an era in which the rogue wave was no longer purely a myth, it was a reality. And from there we enter um, the decades of, of figuring out, well, what's the frequency, what's the cause? and ultimately, what is the risk?
0: Yeah. Now, so you might ask the question, okay, we've just been talking about big waves. What is a rogue wave technically? I think I alluded to this earlier, but a rogue wave is defined in relative terms, right? So it's a wave that's greater than twice the size of all the other waves in the same area at the same time. Uh, And yeah, so rogue waves uh, do occur even in the context of very powerful regular wave patterns. So even in places where the waves are unusually high and choppy, you can mm-hmm. get these things that stand out that are more than twice as tall as the other
1: waves around them. Because again, this North Sea example, like those were some pretty t- tall waves. I mean, weren't we talking earlier about um, in, in, about earlier experts thinking that like 30 feet was more or less the limit?
0: Yeah, that, that was uh, long believed to be about where waves capped off, at least in the kind of conditions you'd expect every year.
1: Right. And so the, the, the just the ambient wave height in the, in the area was already uh, in excess of that.
0: Now, I guess maybe we should talk about how rogue waves exactly cause damage to ships, right? Uh, because there, there are multiple ways that being hit by this flowing mountain, this giant wall of water, can sink you and destroy you. Right. Of course, any time a ship is hit by a giant wave, its physical structure can just be directly damaged by like the force of the impact. Uh, and this is, is this is especially relevant to the superstructure of a ship. Superstructure is what you call all that stuff that's sticking up off the top of the hull, like the mast, the rigging, the bridge, the lifeboats. Uh, it can all be smashed to bits or ripped apart. And of course, a, a lake's worth of water is gonna wash over the top of the vessel. And if there's a way for the vessel to take this water on it very well can do that. So that's your first problem,
1: right? And I think that's an easy one to miss because, again, like you said, we we just we often don't think about just the sheer punch of that water, especially when it is like a a, a fist the size of a la- of, of lakes worth of water.
0: Yeah. Well just imagine you are standing in the bridge of the ship and this wall of water comes across you so it washes over the hull it Mm -hmm. washes over the deck and it smashes into the bridge and what what very well could happen there is if you know if the bridge is not in some significant way destroyed it may well smash through all the windows and throw all that glass at you and wash into the bridge Uh, but so if it hits a ship laterally like hits a ship on the side the ship can be capsized by a rogue wave uh, flipped over on its side or upside down which of course can lead to foundering. You don't want your ship sideways. Um, if it gets, if a ship gets hit head on by a rogue wave, this can also harm it, cause major problems. It can lead to the bow or the stern of the ship being lifted at an angle up out of the water. And if it's a large ship, this can be really dangerous. Because uh, Robert, you remember that scene in Titanic? You know where the ship starts sinking from the bow end? Oh yeah. And the stern of the boat is lifted up at an angle in the air. Ship hulls are extremely heavy <laughs> and they're not designed to withstand sheer stresses on the hull of that immensity. Like the structure can't support half of the weight of the ship hanging up in the air. So the Titanic, of course, kind of cracked like a celery stalk. We, we, I think I was reading that the the – Main theory now is that the crack started at the bottom at a weak point along the base of the ship and then it just cracked off and then the bow sank and then the stern bobbed for a bit and then sank as well. Uh, But of course, giant waves can cause other large ships to do the same. So if the wave washes over you, you can end up with one end of the ship sort of lifted, poking up out of the water as it comes out of this wave uh, motion. And that stress can crack or or otherwise significantly damage the hull, which, of course, again, can make you sink. So there,
1: there are a lot of ways that a giant wave can mess you up. You just don't want them at all. All right. We're going to take one more break. When we come back, we're going to discuss some of the causes for rogue waves and also a, a very recent paper that explored uh, the question, just how often are these occurring and how powerful are they?
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: All right, we're back. So we're looking at the question first of what causes rogue waves. And this is not a fully settled question. I think that there are some uh, some competing and not necessarily mutually exclusive hypotheses here.
1: Right. Uh, so first let's go back to the Dropner wave for a moment. Uh, According to the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, high-resolution retrospective forecasts – Forecast that means going backwards in time, yeah, retrocast. Of, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, quote suggests that waves driven by a southward-moving polar low interacted with a substantial local wind-generated wave system to produce the conditions conducive to the observed large rogue wave. And that's from work by uh, Bid- Bidlow uh, et al.
0: Okay, so that's saying that there are there were conflicting wave patterns right. that that came together in a way that they think created this massive wave. It was something about the way that these two different patterns interacted when they when they crashed together.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, again, storm systems, uh, weather, and the movements of the ocean, these are complex systems that are often difficult for us to understand. But I think we can all... Uh, understand the, uh, the the power of convergence you know when you have uh, have I mean we see we this is something that's understandable about weather right yeah. We have two fronts coming together um, you know we realize that that can be bad news yeah um, and uh, and so it seemingly we had a similar situation here um, uh, it's two energetic systems coming together and it creates uh, uh, conditions that are optimal for this extra large wave to rise up out of the sea
0: and I'll talk more about stuff like that in just a minute
1: They also point to the work of uh, uh, Cavallari et al. from 2016 and they point out also that we shouldn't think of rogue waves as ultra rare rare, once a generation occurrences rather quote such waves are a regular part of large storms and coming across them is just a matter of probability depending on the spatial and temporal scales considered. So the Dropner wave was probably a result of these two crossing low frequency wave systems and it's, it's – it's and it may be more common than we initially thought, especially with fast-moving storms.
0: Yeah. So, what exactly is like the physical mechanism that causes them in these situations? Well, that's still being investigated, but there do appear to be several potential causes and explanations. Like I said, I think these are not mutually exclusive. Like some might explain some rogue waves and others mm-hmm. might explain others. According uh, – the, the NOAA picks out a couple of main ones that it identifies as, as the, the primary candidates. One is wave interference. So when you study the propagation of waves – and this is not just waves in water. This is waves of all kinds like electromagnetic radiation waves, sound waves, waves through matter like, like you see in water. Uh, When you see these – when you look at the propagation of these types of waves, you begin to see that when patterns of waves come into contact with one another, they create an interference pattern. Uh, And this means that waves can, for example, sort of cancel each other out. This is also known as destructive interference uh, you, you might have seen a demonstration of this with like speakers. If you take like sound speakers mm-hmm. and you place them at just the perfect distance apart away from you, the sound waves can actually cancel each other out and suddenly you're not hearing the sound they're making anymore. Oh, wow. But if you turn off one of the speakers, then you can hear it again uh, because they're not canceling each other out anymore. So that's destructive interference when the peaks and the troughs are um, – are alternating, canceling each other out. But peaks and troughs can also line up to multiply one another into giant waves, and this is known as constructive interference. Uh, Ironically, it's the constructive interference that is destructive to our stuff, our ships and our structures. Uh, So that's one thing, just the normal kinds of wave uh, wave interference patterns. Another thing sounds like it taps into the explanation we were just discussing, and that's the interaction of water currents with wave patterns, patterns created by storms. Essentially, when the current is flowing one way and storm winds are pushing surface waves the opposite way, this can cause an interaction that shortens the frequency of waves. And this sometimes leads to waves joining together and forming these gigantic rogue waves. But there's one other major uh, proposed mechanism or proposed explanation I was reading about too. Uh, And this is a hypothesis that deals with nonlinear effects. So, the details of this are far over my head, but I'll do my best. Basically, some research shows that you can actually predict the formation of rogue waves if you model ocean waves with reference to to a nonlinear version of the Schrodinger equation, which, of course, we normally would use to model the behavior of objects at the quantum scale, such as individual atoms. But the, the interesting thing about matter, about objects at the quantum scale, like atoms or electrons or photons, is that in many ways they seem to behave at like waves. You know, that's one of the great paradoxes of quantum mechanics is, well, how can a particle behave like a wave pattern? Mm. But the Schrodinger equation, and it's highly predictive, it tells us, yes, they do in fact behave like a wave pattern, and you need to model them like a wave pattern or you can't predict what they're going to do. So the Schrodinger equation is is useful at modeling and predicting these uh, the behavior of these wave patterns. Uh, but uh, but also apparently the the nonlinear version of it is relevant to predicting the behavior of waves at large scale, like waves in the ocean. And the the mathematical functions underlying this explanation, like I said, they're way over my head. But essentially it's a model that shows how normal interacting wave patterns, just you know, standard waves going back and forth in the ocean, can sometimes become unstable and result in one wave. A one wave peak leaching or sucking energy from the surrounding wave peaks, reducing uh, uh, the surrounding waves and this one wave becoming huge in the process. So that that's another proposed explanation.
1: So where are we currently in our understanding of rogue waves? That's probably the, the, the next logical question to get to, because as we've uh, discussed already, it's like we we've we, we haven't known for sure they exist for too terribly long, and uh, we're still we still have competing or uh, multiple um, scenarios that may explain how they're occurring. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I looked uh, to a 2019 research uh, paper from the University of Southampton in the UK. And basically what they did is they looked at – they decided to take instead of like a global uh, look at the data, they Mm -hmm. tried to to isolate it. Uh, They looked to uh, uh, 15 different uh, buoys on the U.S. western uh, seaboard, and they looked at a a 20-year window. So we're looking at 94 through 2016 as being the window of data that they were looking at uh, isolated to this this region. And uh, this uh, study revealed the following – so, first of all, rogue waves vary greatly depending on the area of sea and the time period focused on. The first part of that I think makes sense because, as we discussed, it just needs to be twice as big as the, as the waves in the area. Mm-hmm. And also, this is very key across two the two decade window studied. Instances of rogue waves fell slightly, while the size of the individual waves increased. Okay, so there's less
0: of them, but they're more powerful when you do get them.
1: Right, kind of a ga- good news, bad news situation. <laughs> right. Uh, they also found, found that you know rogue waves are more prevalent, prevalent and uh, and severe in winter months, mm-hmm. and they're they're happening with increasing of. Uh, frequency within calmer background seas.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Now, we know from previous, just uh, first of all, from anecdotes, you know, common sailor's knowledge, but also uh, I think from more recent research that there are rogue wave hotspots in the right. world where there's particularly dangerous sorts of interaction between ocean currents and weather. I know, for example, one place that's believed to be a rogue wave hotspot is like the, the Southern Cape of
1: Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, you're going around the Cape of Good Hope. It's long been understood as, as treacherous waters.
0: Yeah, uh, for you know and long believed to be a place of bad weather, but also apparently a place of rogue waves.
1: So you're, everyone's probably wondering, well, how often are these things occurring? Again, th- there was once this idea that these were once in a lifetime events; mm. that it was it was like seeing a unicorn on the high seas. But uh, it looks like now we're talking many times per day in the global ocean. Wow! Uh, and then you know that's a ship that's a concern for ships at sea, not only uh, you know the global shipping industry, but other vessels as well. Uh, a 2004 study identified more than 10 giant waves above the 25 meter or 82 uh, foot mark uh, uh, during a mere three week window. Oh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that makes you thankful that the ocean is big and we're not on most of it most of the time. But there's a lot of us out there and a yeah. lot of our stuff out there at any given time also.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, yeah, we there, there's more human activity on the oceans than ever before. Uh, just to give everyone a, a taste of just the, the shipping industry alone. Because yeah. course, the shipping industry is huge. It's easy to take for granted, but it is how uh, most of the goods make their way around the world. They're not traveling by airplane. They're traveling via ships. Right. Uh, and I uh, found some good stats on this from the International Chamber of Shipping. Uh, so first of all, the, the international shipping industry is responsible for the carriage of around ninety percent of world trade. Wow! And a uh, given ship, shipping vessel, we're talking a, a two hundred million dollar investment. Like that's the when when you see these ships that are laden with shipping containers, that's mm-hmm. uh, a two hundred million dollar vessel you're probably looking at. The operation of merchant ships generates uh, an estimated annual income of over half a trillion U.S. dollars in freight rates. There are over 50,000 merchant ships trading internationally, transporting every kind of cargo. And the world fleet uh, in shipping is uh, it's, it's in over 150 nations and manned by over a million seafarers of virtually every nationality. So it's it's immense. Mm-hmm. And there's more of it than ever before. And then we have these waves out there.
0: Yeah. And the, the, so the idea that these uh, waves could be increasing in intensity or becoming more dangerous, that's pretty scary. Because it doesn't just mean like it's scarier for people who physically go out on the water. Of course, it certainly is. But it also represents a threat to uh, to the, the world
1: economy, you know, the economics of goods moving back and forth. Right. Um And then uh, just uh, some more data from this particular paper, the University of Southampton paper, Uh, just considering the U.S. West Coast, which was the focus of this study, Mm -hmm. uh, they say that here you have 49% of total U.S. containerized trade and that this is the largest U.S. gateway for container vessels. Uh, And even when ships are not sunk or capsized by a a wave like this, there's uh, still the risk of rogue wave-induced collisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, that's another thing to consider. If you have two boats that are near each other, Uh, and you have an enormous wave disrupting the waters, then there's a possibility that things could uh, slam together, which they're certainly not designed to do. Then on top of that, this is a region where there's just a high volume of tanker, bolt carrier, roll-on, roll-off, passenger, uh, fishing ships, um, you know, all focused around the ports in the region. And then, of course, you have a fair amount of activity just to service offshore structures in the oil and gas industry, coming back to in our examples with oil platforms earlier. Yeah. Uh, rogue waves have also swept people out to sea in California and Oregon, and, uh, uh, and then one other point: the researchers indicated that global climate change isn't necessarily a factor in all of this. Uh, part of this is that there's just a great deal of oscillation uh, with the with with the, the size of these waves, and we're dealing with such a complex system, and we have only two decades of rogue wave data. Uh, To deal with here. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they don't seem to be ruling it out. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: uh, because of increasing energy, right? If the mm -hmm. sea levels are rising and the oceans are getting warmer and you're getting more intense weather patterns. Right.
1: Uh, Yeah. So basically, they're not saying it's not the cause. They're just saying we're not presenting that with this data. Uh, Ultimately, they, again, only two decades worth of data to go on here.
0: Uh, I was reading an interview from back in 2010 with the author Susan Casey who wrote a book that I read a few years ago and I absolutely loved. It's sort of a half-memoir, half-science book about the Farallon Islands off the, uh, off sort of around where San Francisco is
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, and about great white sharks. And th- that book was called The Devil's Teeth. But this interview was about another book she wrote, uh, apparently a book about giant waves called The Wave published in 2010. And in the interview, she talks about how companies that write uh, insurance insurance policies for maritime voyages are concerned about increasing risk and part of this risk seems to be concern about rogue waves she says quote Lloyd's of London of course a you know big maritime insurer Lloyd's of London is actually quite concerned about cruise ships. One of the guys said to me, this is a high concentration of risk. You've got 5,000 people on boats that are getting bigger and bigger, and they're going into gnarlier and gnarlier places. They're all over Antarctica now, for example. Uh, Recently, one of the hardier cruise ships got hit by a 100-foot rogue wave, and all of its navigation equipment got knocked out and the windows got broken. During another recent cruise in Antarctica, all all the people ended up in the water, which isn't a good situation by the grace of god there was another boat nearby.
1: Now we're talking about big picture risk here. Yeah. Uh, I just want to stress that we're not we're, we're in 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 this episode we are not attempting to scare you out of your next uh, oceanic voyage oh, or no, no, cruise no. or anything of that nature.
0: Though I think if that were our goal we could do a very good job of it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. That, no, that is not our goal. I mean, but yeah, there are obviously um, going to be huge risks to ocean uh, ocean voyages of all kinds. And w- one of the biggest impacts that would be there would obviously be trade. I do think it's interesting that there are still uh – such uh, mysterious uh, unresolved questions about the behavior of waves, of waves in the ocean. I mean, this seems like something that people have been aware of for a very long time, have Mm -hmm. been studying for a very long time, but it's one of those uh, kind of chaotic and complex things that maybe we don't often stop to to, to appreciate the mystery and majesty of.
1: Well, it's easy to just watch wave activity in the ocean, you know, know, sit on the beach or uh, on the deck of a ship and, and watch the waves and it's calming and it's it's rhythmic. There seems to be a—I mean, there is an order to it, but it seems to—there seems to be an order that we can grasp, mm. that we can uh, that we can understand from a human perspective, and of course, really, uh, it's it's ultimately more the domain of. Uh, of increasingly complex um, uh, computer simulation pro- programs, if not the uh, machinations of some sort of vengeful sea god.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons we're so tempted to uh, wish to think of the waves as regular is because we can listen to them. It's because it's auditory. Mm-hmm. Because it's auditory information instead of just being visual information, it assumes a kind of background rhythm whenever we're by the ocean or we hear something recorded by the ocean or we're on the ocean. Uh, you know, the, the wave activity becomes the 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 steady, reliable percussion of our lives. And then the idea that one of these waves could suddenly reach out and be not like the others, be this angry hand of God, feels like a violation of what nature has asked us to expect.
1: Yeah, the white noise app that I use to sleep every night never gives me a rogue wave. It's (laughs) always just consistent, uh, calming, uh, oceanic activity. Yeah, what if it just suddenly screamed your name? (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it. You know, as as we've mentioned before, you know, we we are both landsmen here. Uh, so we would love to hear from the sea folk out there uh, if you have any anything to add on this. Have you mm. encountered uh, sizable waves or even if you have you witnessed or seen the, the handiwork of something that could be classified as a rogue wave? We would love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Please get in touch. In the meantime, uh, if you want to listen to this episode or more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoboilyourmind.com. That's where you'll find the landing page for this episode. Uh, and that also features the, the artwork, the great wave off uh, Kanagawa. You can see this image in case you, you're not sure you've seen it before. And if you want to interact with other listeners, uh, be sure to head on over to uh, the discussion module. It's called uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. It is a Facebook group. Uh, it is uh, it's a pretty decent place as far as social media goes. Uh, <laughs> one of my more uh, one of my few preferred uh, social media destinations these days.
0: Literally the only reason I still have a Facebook account.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so make it your reason as well. And uh, as always, too, if you want to if you want to support our show. You know, you can buy some merchandise through our t-shirt store. That's always appreciated. But the best thing you can do is just to rate and review the show wherever you have the power to do so. And tell a friend. If an episode really resonated with you, share it with someone else. Uh, I mean, really, that's the... And that's the the bread and butter of this show's appeal.
0: Big thank you, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, uh, tell us about rogue waves, tell us about waves in general, tell us your stories of the high seas, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you.
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Top Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.